0: Okay, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We are so grateful for the privilege to just be here and to be thinking about you this morning. Father, I pray that you would um, give patience to all those people that are in line on Washington Street (laughs) and the lady who collapsed behind me in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I would not, I believe I would not have gotten here had it not been for, and this is, I, I don't even know what to say. I was just pulling away and I was in Washington. It took me an hour and 15 minutes to go about less than a mile because of that bike race. And uh, by the way, contact your local representative. And uh, anyway, a lady collapsed behind me in the, uh, is this a marathon? What is this, a triathlon? Okay, okay, triathlon. So she, she collapsed behind me, and it stalled all the traffic, so I had to get a, an ambulance in, and I think that's why they released some of the lights, uh, otherwise I would have missed this morning, which probably would have been great. You would have had a great time without me, but nevertheless. Were well, you ready to continue this uh, little Ephesians exploration? Uh, we had a great time in Israel. For those of you who were able to go, what a privilege to be able to kind of lead you through this. It was just an awesome experience. Uh, I've been over there many times now, and I just got to tell you, it is impactful. Uh, We saw people come to know Jesus. We saw people be recommitted. We saw marriages healed, which is all kinds of things. Plus, we got to see where Jesus walked. And, uh, I mean, it's just amazing what they continue to discover. It's astounding to support the biblical narrative and all the critics and all the all the people through the years that said, "Well, this couldn't possibly have happened. This couldn't possibly have happened. We don't even believe in King David." And of course, the the, the rocks speak. And I and I have told our group. I said, "I think that's kind of what Jesus may have been saying. If you don't worship me, even these rocks will cry out." And the rocks are crying out. Both the old stones and also the living stones as well so what a privilege to be there with you and I'm so sorry all of us couldn't be there it would have been great to have everybody traveling but two buses and it worked beautifully we had some incredible people with us and and uh, it was a great time so it made me think we are just to happen to be in a very strategic place in scripture to actually meld these two. this both experience of Israel Uh, and our Israel trip, and then exactly where we are. So if you haven't been following along, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 19 through 22. We just touched on it uh, three weeks ago or two weeks ago when I was here with you, and I'm going to revisit this. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, you ready for this? It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, thank God. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. He's primarily speaking to the the Gentile community. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So what is this about? It really is talking about the church. It's talking about this, and Paul will go into this in the next chapter. He's going to say this is an incredible mystery. Nobody saw this coming. These Gentiles, these pagans, these worshipers of strange deities, rocks and stars, and I mean, we've got the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they've got just stone and all these other. They're they're idol worshippers. They're pagans. They they worship just strange myths and things like that. So it's an incredible mystery to us that the Gentiles are actually being brought in. And then Paul, here in the latter part of 2, says this is what the church is. It's a it's a foundation. The very cornerstone is Jesus. If you know anything about a cornerstone, you know that's the stone that they set that pretty much dictates the building and the structure and the layout of everything else that's going to be built on top of it. Jesus is the cornerstone. But what's interesting is that Jesus is referred to nine different times in Scriptures as as being a various kind of stone the end we see we'll see it in Zechariah in a minute he's the top stone he's not only the cornerstone which is the beginning of the foundation he's also the top stone Zechariah was prophesying this hundreds of years in advance of jesus he's the cleft in the rock that we see in scripture he's the he's the amazing boulder the massive stone that crashes all the other kingdoms in daniel chapter 2 we see over and over that jesus is referenced as a stone or a rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he was the rock that was following them that the water poured out of, if you'll remember when Moses struck the rock, the very reason he wasn't able to enter into the promised lands because he struck the rock and God had told him to speak to the rock. And a picture of Jesus again being crucified 1,500 years in advance of his crucifixion. It's amazing that we look through that. We see the crushing stone. We see the stone of stumbling that we'll see in Isaiah chapter 8. Jesus is referenced to, the Messiah figure is referenced as a rock nine different times. But in this way, it's the cornerstone. This sets the track for the entirety of the church. Not only is it going to be Jewish believers in Jesus, it's also going to be Gentile believers in Jesus. And the foundation is Christ, the cornerstone, and the apostles And the prophets, if you have your Bible, I'm just going to think about this in three different ways. I want to think first this week about, well, first of all, we've got to prepare the ground. We've got to level the ground. You don't start a building just building on the side of a mountain without a lot of foundational work. Some of you see that happen in Southern California. What happens, we have an earthquake or we have floods, you'll see erosion and various homes without the proper foundation will begin to kind of slide off the cliff. Uh, You know, you wonder what the builder was thinking when he did that. He never would have imagined that that kind of erosion would have taken place. The foundation's important. Zechariah chapter 4, listen to the language, and I think it's going to unpack for you in your own head some of the statements that Jesus made about prayer that have been confusing for us throughout throughout the centuries, I think, for a lot of people. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 says, Then he said to me, this is the word of the lord to zerubbabel saying not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the lord what are you great mountain before zerubbabel you will become a plain and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace grace to it now what does that mean what's the context who is the zachariah figure there were two figures Zechariah and haggai that were both given the task by god to encourage prophesy and encourage the rebuilding of the temple after it had been destroyed under the Babylonian captivity. One of the things that you've got to understand that we can learn, it's an amazing thing that we can learn, we can learn how to build a church by watching how they were building the temple because God goes on to say that you're both an individual temple and we are collectively a temple as we'll see in a minute. So we are a temple. Right here is a temple right here. Not this lecture hall, not where we are meeting right now, but we, if you're a follower of Jesus, we've created a temple of living stones being built into a dwelling place for God in the Spirit, Peter had said. We are a temple. You know, one of the most interesting things about going to Israel is that there are so many different beliefs about the the eschaton, the end of all things. There's a lot of beliefs among many of you probably, and it's the way you've heard it taught, and, and then there are others of you who've heard the exact opposite. Some believe that a literal physical temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem on this place that Herod, King Herod had built years ago, and it's a, it's a monstrosity. It's called the Temple Mount, and it's controlled um, by Islam now, and yet they've got uh, the Israeli police up there to kind of navigate the waters up there. So it's a really, it's an interesting place. Probably one of the most fought after pieces of turf on the planet. I would say there's not even a close second. Will there be a literal temple rebuilt? Well, some of you say, well, yeah, of course there's going to be, because the Bible says there's going to be. And others say, well, of course there's not going to be, because a temple, God's not talking about a physical, literal temple. They even have a temple institute there in Israel where they're reconstructing some of these things in Orthodox Jewish um, a sect of orthodox Judaism, and they 're moving slowly, even one of these implements to actually fill one day when they get their temple mount now i don 't know how that 's going to happen without a war war uh, a world war but i 'm just telling you it 's going to be challenging to see i don 't know whether that 's going to happen or not. Some of you may be disappointed in my view of eschatology i don 't know whether a literal physical temples going to be ha- going to happen ever in the future, but I will tell you this: I know. A temple is being built right in Jerusalem today. We met some of the living stones among believing Arabs and believing Jews and, and Gentiles, all being built into a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Now, whether you spiritualize that or you make that a literal fulfillment is really not the point of this. I will tell you this. One temple I do know is being built and has been been built for 2,000 years is the temple that we even have right here. All over the world, there are people who embrace Jesus And they become part of this temple so God can dwell among us. And that's normal because Jesus said, if there's just two or more gathered in my name, I will be there in your midst. And so in a sense, we are both collectively a temple and then individually. 1 Corinthians 6 says we are individually a temple for God. Both God comes and lives on the inside of us individually. So that's pretty awesome. Now, this Zechariah prophecy is amazing because it said two things. First of all... We don't build the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building this gig that we call the church, this gathering of people. And I said gig because I've been in traffic for the last hour and a half. So, and I, by the way, I just need to confess, Lord, just I broke every law there was on the way here and I just need to confession. otherwise I don't know that you're going to be with me in the rest of this sermon. Amen. I did. I, I broke all kinds of laws. I, sp- I sped, uh, but I, I, was, I was nice to those people who were pulling in front of me. So so uh, I guess that was penance for, for all the law-breaking I did. But notice, not by might nor by power. You don't, you're, Zerubbabel, you're not going to build this structure by might or by power. It's by my spirit. I can tell you right now, just after two years, the church at the red door, it's being built by his spirit. If it's not, I don't want any part of it. If it's just because we got you know, great people. or great We do have great people. We've got incredible volunteers. I mean, it was just incredible, the, the family that's being built here, but it's even not us. It's His Spirit that's building this and hopefully attracting people that want to know more about Jesus and then be discipled, be baptized, be discipled, and then actually sent out into whatever God has called you to do on this planet. I don't know what that is. Some of you, I do, and it's incredible, but That's part of his spirit and his power. And then he says, and it will be completed, this top stone. So we have a cornerstone, and we also have a top stone. The top stone is that final stone that we place in the building. That's also a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the beginning of the church, and he will culminate the church. And by his spirit, it's going to be built and is being built. And that is awesome to me. And then it says, and then it says at the end, grace, grace to it. That just means all just favor rests on this thing. Can, he, can, you, can I just tell you, if you're part of the community that Jesus is building, can I just tell you there's grace on your life? There's grace on us here. It's amazing. It continues to boggle my mind. I see people who try to live the Christian life outside of community, about outside of really being able to walk it out. I mean, we just had, with 70 people, we had 10 days. In Israel, where we got up thinking about Jesus, we went to bed thinking about Jesus, we were, it was, people say it's just an amazing time, they can't wait, they want to go again because all of a sudden this community emerges and, and we're talking about things that actually matter. We're not talking about basketball games and football games and, and, and food and all this other, we're actually talking about our whole subject, our context is just Jesus every day. It's amazing. I don't know how you do, that's awesome in 10 days, but what if, can you go months without collectively coming together and actually being rivet on something more than your life and your bank account and your golf swing and your, all your other stuff? I mean, it's just great. We just come here for an hour and a half on Sunday. It needs to be more than that. It's a community. We live life together. We love together and we reach out to other people who don't yet know Jesus together. That's awesome. I mean, that is awesome. Listen to what Isaiah said. Now also think about those mountains. What he, Remember, Zachariah says, this mountain is going to be nothing. It's going to be made a plain. We see that over and over. We see it again in Isaiah chapter 41. Listen to the language, verse 15. Isaiah, again, speaking to Israel, said, you guys have failed. You failed over and over. You failed, you failed the law. You failed to keep covenant with me. You failed the Mosaic covenant, Israel. And yet there's a future where it's going to be it's going to be great. I'm still going to use you. Listen to the language. He says, Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them. In other words, this picture of making something level so something can be built that's solid and eternal. These mountains get in the way. But he wasn't talking about a literal mountain. It was rubable. He was just talking about this amazing challenges they were going to have in building the church to rebuild excuse me the temple to rebuild the temple he kind of see saw it metaphorically as a mountain and now isaiah is seeing seeing the same thing and he was writing several hundred years in advance of zachariah says there's coming a day when you're going to pulverize these mountains they're going to be like chaff, and you'll winnow them, and the wind will carry them away, and the storm will scatter them, but you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Who is the Holy One of Israel? It's not only just God the Father, but it's this messianic figure that Isaiah is looking at some 700 years in advance of, this, of Jesus. This is powerful. Listen to language is even more clear. Some of you have heard me teach on this, but this is powerful. Isaiah chapter 40, he's saying, "'Comfort, O comfort my people.'" Right? They've suffered a lot. People ask me all the time, why anti-Semitism? Why, why do Jewish people always, why are they just hunted down, chased down? I'll tell you this, it's a spiritual thing because they were given the covenants to mediate and be a light to the nations. So Satan has been after them from the beginning. If he, I think he, he thought if he could wipe out the physical descendants of Abraham, somehow he may have been able to stop the new covenant from coming, from the Messiah coming. That would inaugurate the new covenant in his blood. The covenant of grace, not the law. Which is enmity between Jews and Gentiles as we saw a couple of weeks ago. Listen to the language of Isaiah. Listen to this. Comfort, O comfort, my people. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. She has received with the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. She's paid a heavy price for her failure, but speak mercy to her and in this way a voice is calling and this was again a prophecy of John the Baptist the Bible New Testament clearly says that John the Baptist was this voice that was crying out in the wilderness he was a preparatory ministry for Jesus to come he was preparing the way clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness make smooth in the desert a highway for our God do you see this It says let every valley be lifted up let every mountain and hill be made low let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley then the glory of the lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the lord has spoken what isaiah is saying here is he's saying there has to be preparation for the messiah to come now i want you to get this because this is going to be important in a minute there has to be preparation of the ground metaphorically, the ground of our hearts. It's kind of that the sower went out to sow and it, some found good ground and some found rocky ground or ground that had weeds in it or ground that, seed that fell beside the wayside. You know, many of you know that parable. The ground has to be prepared for your heart to hear. Some of you maybe already drifted off. I just know that has, that's how it goes and, but some of you, your ground has been made right because somebody has sown into your life maybe just love, and you knew they were Christians, and maybe that's why you're here this morning, because, or maybe that's why you're listening on a live stream, because somebody somewhere along the road just loved on you, and you knew they were believers, and they just did something in your heart and said, those are Jesus people. I know they are, and I don't know if I believe that, but I'm, I'm drawn towards that. The atmosphere in my own heart has changed because of what I see in them. Their ground has been made level. And I think this is what Jesus was doing. He was bringing down mountains. Sometimes he talked very harshly to, especially the religious leaders, that thought they were religious mountains and he would have to bring them down. John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil. Now you think that was a nice thing to hear if you were a religious Jew? He was bringing mountains down. Or the rich young ruler, mountains. You know, people who had place of prominence. Back then, religious leaders had a, had a had a good identity within the community, whether they had places of power. Not so much anymore today, but that was the case back then. or, Or very wealthy people had power. That's certainly the same today. And he would bring them down. It's difficult for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, wow, I thought this was an indication of God's blessing in my life. He said he reversed that. Jesus reversed that. But then at times... He would lift the the valleys up, people who already were humbled by life circumstances or felt they were a million miles away from God. Not too different than when he just, and we were right there just a, few, just a week ago there at Capernaum where he just reached out to a bunch of stinky fishermen. Why don't you drop your nets and come follow me? That was raising a valley up. They didn't think they were, well, they didn't think they were rabbi material, but why would this famous rabbi be talking about them? That's why they dropped their nets so quickly because no rabbi had ever come their direction certainly not up in the galilee region and say follow me he was lifting those valleys up or maybe maybe the woman who had been caught in adultery he said where are your accusers and he and he reached down and he did something in the dirt there and but then he says you know neither do i accuse you go and sin no more he was she was certainly a valley she had a tough life she it wasn't didn't take a whole lot to convince her that she wasn't holy and righteous before God. She was already a valley. God says, No, but I I'm not accusing you anymore. Or rough, you know, the rough around the edges stuff. That's what we're getting. That, that's what prepares people's hearts to hear about Jesus and become part of this living temple. Are you with me? This is good stuff right here. That's 700 years before Jesus. I think you can begin to understand the ministry of Jesus if you'll more fully understand what he saw in people. He loved everybody. He loved the Pharisees just as as much as he loved the the fishermen or even the righteous or whoever. He loved them all. But some had to be brought down and some had to be lifted up to make a level place so that they could become part of a church. Church is built, the temple, if you will, is built on solid level ground. That's what we get. Now, there's a couple of places in Scripture, I think with this as a backdrop, that you'll maybe understand the language of Jesus when he says some strange things. So, Matthew, if you will, chapter 17, you'll, many of you will remember this, when they, verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, he is a lunatic, that's what my dad used to say about me too, and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they just couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Just bring him here, bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. Wow, it's pretty awesome. Listen to the language G- Jesus uses now. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I remember when I first came to the Lord, I thought I had a lot of faith, man. I have so much faith and I I actually don't, Criticize me for this. Well, you can. You can laugh at me, but I I would sit there sometimes and pray and say, okay, now I want to see that mountain move a little bit. I'd, I'd be in Colorado or something. Just, just a little bit, Lord, because I have such faith and it's so so, so pro- profound faith. And I don't know if I was looking for an earthquake or just a, I mean, really, I was like, well, I Lord, I believe your word. I didn't understand the language that Jesus was using, and the metaphor he was imploring here. He was uh, employing here from the Old Testament. About moving mountains, pulverizing them. Jesus, I think, essentially was just talking about, uh, and this is clear: all difficulties will be leveled here. Even Satan's activity in your life, Satan has a plan against you. God has a plan for you. Satan has a plan to what? Kill, steal, and wipe you out. From off the planet. That's his desire to make you as miserable and alienated from God as he possibly can. Some may laugh at that guy with little things and, you know, tail and pitchfork and all that. Trust me, he wasn't. He was a beautiful creation. He was one of the, the angels that was very near God, if you go back and try to understand that. Both Isaiah and Ezekiel both kind of speak to that. So Satan's activities are mountains in your life. God comes in in preparation for you to hear about him and begins to wipe those mountains out. That's what he's referring to. If you just have a little bit of faith, you, just, you don't have enough faith, but you, you'll be able to... Uh, look, you're following me. Just have some faith that these mountains and these people's lives will be removed. Satan's activities in their lives can be removed. Do you, do you pray like that for maybe children or grandchildren or friends or somebody you're tr- praying for? Do you say, Father, I'm asking that you move that mountain out of their lives, that rock that uh, disallows them from even being able to see or hear who you are. They just have this big mountain in front of them. Oh, the littleness of your faith. When I read that, I think about Jesus going, come on, Jeff, you've got people in your life you've been praying for. Have faith that those mountains. I'm going to remove those mountains. It's not by might nor by power, by my spirit. I pray, I have people that I pray for daily that these mountains will be removed by God's spirit, pulverized so that they can make their way onto this proverbially the proverbial highway of holiness that gets back to Zion, which is God's, a place of God's presence. Are you with me on this? Now, also listen to Matthew 21, just a few chapters later, verse 18. Another strange story, but listen to the language. Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you, and at once the fig tree withered. Strange story, right? Seeing this, the disciples, they were amazed. How did that fig tree wither all at once? It's strange. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, if you have faith and don't doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to what? What? this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea it will happen and all things you ask in prayer believing you will receive see i think what he was doing with this fig tree and and there are many different interpretive views of this and i could kind of go down another route i think would be accurate as well but one of the things he was looking at is unfruitfulness if there's no faith in your life your life is unfruitful and that was the case with, as he looked over the city. That was kind of the case with Jerusalem. Jerusalem, O oh Jerusalem, how I desired to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. And then he prophesied a really bad situation that would happen some forty years after his resurrection. Not one stone would be left upon another. We were actually at the old city, and you could look down in this one kind of crevasse around the side on the western wall, and you could see these stones. And our guide was there to say, those are actually stones from the second temple that were turned. Not one stone was left upon another. Why? Because of their lack of faith. They were fruitless. And Jesus then employs this metaphor of a mountain. If you just speak to this mountain and have faith enough to be removed, faithlessness in people and in ourselves. Do you have mountains in your own life right now? I mean, do you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus? I mean, it's easy to say yes, but when the rubber meets the road, I mean, think about it deeply. Do you actually believe in the literal, not spiritual or metaphor, the literal resurrection of Jesus out of the grave? We finished our trip at the Garden Tomb, whether it was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre the Garden Tomb uh, or maybe somewhere else, we don't really know, but it's right near what looks like a skull, which was Golgotha and here's that garden tomb, and, and, and people, all of our people would walk in along with all the nations that have streamed there, you know, Zimbabweans and, and, and Nigerians and uh, South Americans, Australians, New Zealanders, all just streaming into this tomb just to get a glimpse of where he was. He's not there anymore, and I wonder how many actually... Actually believe, probably a lot of them, they wouldn't have made the pilgrimage all the way there. To believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that's powerful. But mountains have to be moved out of people's hearts. They've got to have faith. They need faith. So say to this mountain, be ye removed in somebody's life. So maybe you want to pray that even today. Maybe you've got somebody you care for deeply. Begin to say, Father, I'm asking you and I believe that you're going to pulverize these mountains in their hearts so they can see who you are. And come into a dynamic relationship. Not religion, that's so boring. I mean, one thing you get when you go to Israel, you see a lot of people practicing religion and none of them seem happy. I mean, it really is true. It seems almost misery, this rote behavior of just this daily thing they have to do to get up to God. And I tell the group all the time. I said, do you see joy? I look for joy. And then we meet as, as we broadcast to you last week. Did they seem like they had joy? Carlos and Shams and Seth and Dr. Saref, did, did they seem like they had joy? Did, yes, and if you were with them, you would even feel more joy. There was such joy there. Not a religious protocol, just joy in Christ. It's beautiful. And a unity that just it just boggles the mind. So this is what has to be done with the ground of our hearts, with the ground of a culture, the atmosphere has to be changed. One of the books that really profoundly impacted me and also one of my cohorts, Jeff Hopper, who's the CFO of Lynx, and some of you know I still serve as president of Lynx Players. Um, we have like 240 or 50 groups now that meet around the country, which is awesome, that meet at uh, clubs and different places that kind of and around the game of golf. So so Jeff, I think it was Jeff who actually found this book and and uh, it had a big impact on me. Listen to, listen to what he says about us imagining that we're always in a season of harvest. Do you remember when Jesus was with the, the woman at the well and then she had gone back to the city? He was talking to his disciples, and that's where he says, the, the fields are white with, for harvest. And sometimes we think, well, that's always true. And listen to what Tim Downs says, and I think it's right. He says, in our zeal for the harvest, we have forgotten, we have deliberately devalued the role of those who sow in our generation. Catch what he just said. He says, and why not? After all, what kind of fool would continue to sow when the harvest has arrived? Because of the evangelistic success of the last 40 years, we have concluded that we have entered a state of perpetual harvest, maybe even the last harvest, and the fields of our society will forever be white. He said, in our enthusiasm, we have declared harvesting to be our exclusive domain, forgetting that we have reaped the benefits of someone else's labor do you remember when jesus said you have entered into their labor don't forget there are people the reason their harvest is white and it's ready to be you know for the sickle to come in and people to come to christ is because somebody had been doing a lot of work in their hearts for a long time that's what jesus is saying you're entering into their labor. Let me tell you something. It's hard to have somebody that doesn't know Jesus or reject him to sow and sow and sow. And I know many of you probably have friends, as I do, or family members who don't know Jesus and you just wish they do. They did. You're doing the hard work of sowing. He says, In our enthusiasm we've declared harvesting our exclusive do- domain, forgetting that we have reaped the benefits of someone else's labor, the labor of sowers and that we are responsible to sow, or the next generation of Christians will have nothing to reap. In the 1990s, scores of Christian organizations announced evangelistic efforts focused on the year 2000. In the minds of many Christians, this is not just any harvest, this is the last harvest. This is the fourth and final lap of the Olympic 1500-meter run, and we have started our fateful kick toward the finish line. But what if this isn't the final lap? What if it's not? Jesus told his disciples that one day in heaven, both the sower and the reaper would be glad together. But what if the sower decides not to sow? What if he decides to sit and watch? What if he decides that he would really rather harvest? What if the sower is unwilling to do the exhausting, unrewarded, behind-the-scenes work of preparing for the harvest? I often ask the Lord about church at the red door. Will we will we be primarily a sowing ministry or primarily a harvesting ministry or maybe a combination of both? I would hope it'd be a combination of both. I mean, I'd love to see people come to Jesus in in vast numbers. In fact, that's what drives a lot of the, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes at Church at the Red Door. But I also realize that maybe we're preparing the ground for someone who comes after us. I don't know. But would we be willing to be working, removing mountains, leveling the ground? Would we, would, we, would we be willing to do that unrewarded work and not maybe see the vast numbers if we did sowing in and, and, and such a time as this? I don't know. I don't know what the Lord's heart is. Only time will see whether we do sowing or, or a lot of harvesting. I hope we do, quite frankly, both, as I alluded to earlier. He says this, but what if the sower decides, excuse me, what if the sower decides that harvesting is the only worthy form of labor? What if the harvester, by elevating the importance of his own role, devalues the role of the sower until no one can be found who will fill that second-rate role? Now, you know from Tim, he's not he doesn't think that, but we think that sometimes, just the work. Then he talks about, then he just, in this last paragraph, he talks a little bit of just about the environments you find yourself, whether it be a work environment or Maybe somewhere here, your neighborhood or your friends. Listen to what he says. For a gardener, sowing sometimes involves working nutrients deep into the soil so that a plant can put down an extensive root system. In the same way, the first step in sowing is the market in the marketplace involves working, God, deep into the atmosphere. I love that language, of our workplace until an environment is created where spiritual activity, can naturally occur, that deep work of an atmospheric change because you began to just be different in your work environment, you began to do weird things like, you know, love others like you love yourselves. How strange, how weird, how weird it is to not live in a quid pro quo world where you actually give somebody something without any thought of anything in return, How strange. That's why it's hard to reach down to those who will never be able to repay you. It's easy to go and invite the wealthiest guy in the city. Proverbs says that. A king has many friends. But it's hard to do the work of sowing in somebody's life that you know is never going to be able to repay you. Not one single thing. How strange. What a weird life. What a weird way to do life. But you know what happens when that happens? the atmosphere changes that's sowing work that's preparation of the ground work so that the cornerstone can be set in that person's life and they can be then become a living living stone being built into a dwelling place for God in the spirit are you with me on this this is good stuff that's good preaching Oh, how are we on time? We've got five more minutes. I'm going to take you to the second part of this. We've got to gather material for the church, for the temple, all right? Materials have to be gathered. I'm going to take you to something I shared with the group, Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 44. Let me just read this going to talk a little bit more about the stone this is so powerful i hope you can get this you realize and it's important i say okay luke is part of the new testament for those of you who are new to your bible that was these things were written uh this was a gospel written after the time of jesus about jesus life but within a very short order after his death not two or three hundred years later certainly i would say certainly before the destruction of the temple okay but the prophets that we're re- referencing here are going to be writing hundreds of years in advance of Jesus. Now that's important for you to understand. Always, because it's so awesome to see that the prophets were talking about Jesus over and over and over and over. That's all that just they, they kept talking about Jesus. That's what makes me so intellectually compelled about Jesus as being the Messiah and Christianity. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After he'd said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now what we learned, uh, many of you learned, is that Jerusalem is a much higher elevation. So we were by the Dead Sea or Masada, and it, you know, it was about 20 degrees warmer down there, at least 15. And then as we begin to ascend to Jerusalem, it, got so, it gets a little colder, It'd be like being here today, and then going all the way up to Hemet or Idlewild or something, or Big Bear. It gets going to get a lot cooler as you go along. And that was what was happening. So if you're reading your Bible, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, those 14 psalms, they're called the songs of ascent. People would sing that and declare those praises as they ascended going back to one of the holy convocations that they were told to respect all the way back as far as Leviticus chapter 23 in the law. Whether it be Passover or Feast of Fruits or Day of Atonement or whatever, if they would go back, Pentecost, they would go back for these various feasts and they would be observing those. So that was what was occurring. Now, when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, that was where Lazarus lived, by the way, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Many of you know the story. If anyone asks you, why, why are you untying it? You'll just say, the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent away and found it, just as he told them, and as they were untying the colt, Its owner said, why are you untying the colt? Just like Jesus said. And they said, well, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And he was going, he was spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting. Notice what they're shouting. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What were they doing there? They were quoting the psalmist that had written this 1,000 years before Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118. Interesting, interesting. I believe it's verse 26. Well, some of the Pharisees said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He says, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. He said, "'If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace,' but now they've been hidden from your eyes." Hidden by what? By the mountains that was in front of them, whether it be a religious mountain or otherwise. "'For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another.'" Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation, so here it is in short order. We call this Palm Sunday. Throwing down palm branches, coats on the back of the donkeys. Everybody, uh, you know, he, they're they're giving him an amazing entry. That's why we call it the triumphal entry. And he was a king, but not the kind of king they were expecting. They were expecting him to overthrow Roman rule. So here he comes down on this little donkey. Why? Because Zechariah nine had prophesied that the king will enter on the back of a donkey. Why didn't Jesus come in great triumph? Oh, he will. He will come in great triumph and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But his first coming was in humility to lay down his life as the ultimate sacrifice. And he comes in on the back of a donkey. Amazing. And he's he's making his way down on the back of a donkey and this is our king, this is our king. And they're quoting Psalm 118. Now what's fascinating about this is that Isaiah, now I want you to go to Isaiah. We're going to put all this together. Isaiah chapter 28. Listen to what Isaiah had seen about 300 years later after the psalmist says this. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly what? Cornerstone. So is Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, is he just pulling that out of nowhere? No, he knows what the Isaiah has seen. This is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. He's the foundation for the church. He sets the direction. A costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Isaiah was seeing that seven hundred years before Jesus, and I'm telling you, twenty-seven hundred years removed from this prophecy, this has been an absolute, absolute truth in my own life. I'm undisturbed, even by traffic. <laughs> I'm undisturbed. I mean, really, truly. I'm like, okay, Lord. How, how can you, I've been being here in two weeks, been in Israel, and I'm, I'm looking forward to being with my family this morning, and I'm, I moved like 200 yards in almost an hour. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but, Lord, you're going to do something special. I'll either get there, and if I don't, there will be something else you have planned. And I'm just, you know, I'm a, I mean, there's so many ways that life in Christ... <laughs> is undisturbed, certainly undisturbed by Satan. Now, I will tell you, it doesn't mean that we won't have tribulations. Jesus said we would, but even through the tribulation, there's a calm that just permeates our lives. Isaiah had seen it correctly through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's trust in the cornerstone, belief into this cornerstone. What was he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Paul's talking about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 8, but there's something else about this stone that's also going to be true. Verse 14 of Isaiah 8, Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. There is going to come a stone, a cornerstone, a cleft of the rock. We've seen all those things be true, but somehow Israel is going to stumble over this cornerstone. This rock. They're going to stumble and they're going to strike it. Can't believe the Jewish people would hang Jesus on the cross. Let me tell you something. All of us hung Jesus on the cross. My sin put Jesus on the cross. It's going to be a snare and it's a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and it was. Many will stumble over them and they will fall and be broken and be snared and caught. Bind up this testimony. Seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly to him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And that was true. The apostles, the early foundation. What's the church, what's the temple built on? Christ the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets. Did we see miracles occur through the apostles? Yes, we did. Isaiah had seen that 700 years before Jesus. The disciples who believed in the cornerstone were going to be for signs and wonders in Israel, and that's exactly what they did. Isn't that awesome? I mean, look what he's seeing here. I hope this grabs you this morning of the profundity of what Isaiah has seen and the exactness of the fulfillment in Jesus. Now, I want to go back to Psalm 118 because we looked at Psalm 118, 26. This is what they were chanting as Jesus came into the city, Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, a week, just a week later, they would be saying, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. Wow, what a turnaround. What a fickle lot. But before you point the finger, have you not been fickle in your lives? I have. It's grace. It's always grace. But let's go back to verse 22. Had they just seen when they're chanting Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, if they had just read four verses earlier, it probably would have terrified them. Listen to what it says in its full context. The stone which the builders did what? Rejected. Has become the chief cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh Lord, do save, we beseech you. Oh Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. See, the psalmist had seen it with exact clarity. What are they going to do? They're going to reject the stone. But it would become the chief cornerstone. They were right and they were wrong. They were right in applying Psalm 118 to the Messiah. That's right. What they did not understand is that just four verses earlier, well, we're going to reject this cornerstone, but blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is that not unbelievable? So what we see is he spoke through the prophets and then he spoke through the apostles. We'll we'll see a little bit more of that next week. So where does this leave us? Well, I I think that the application for me is that God is building the church. He's building his temple today. He is right now, all over the world. One of the most profound things, and I ask people all the time okay, so what's really been impactful for you? And everybody has something slightly different, but one of the answers I got that was just so consistent over and over it's just amazing to be here and see all the nations in Israel. I mean, if you've ever not had the opportunity to go to Israel, I'm just telling you, you're going to see asians you're going to see i mean all over the map you're going to see orthodox people you can see russians you're going to see americans you're gonna canadians you're going to see everybody and i ask and you can ask the group every time we go by sometimes it's some of these sites is just almost you know you're shoulder to shoulder with all these other people and and they're of every color every ethnic background every everything and they're here for one thing so they can be taught about jesus it's so powerful that's the temple Christ, the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets, the foundation, and these living stones, the mysterious living stones emerging out of every ethnic background, out of people that were what? Alienated from God without any hope in the world. They're all becoming part of this. And what's orchestrating it all? God's spirit. At the end, what my takeaway is from this passage in Ephesians is that we win this top stone will be placed there will be a culminating event and god will say okay that's the culmination of all redemptive history and jesus was both the cornerstone and he'll come back as the top stone and then we'll we'll, we'll be prepared for eternity the living temple it's powerful isn't it isn't that exciting we're not just pulling this out of nowhere It's not just some guy going away in a cave and having some dreams and then just, you know, saying, well, I think this is what's going to happen in the future. God, in such an exacting way, Hebrews 1 says, in many portions and in many ways, he spoke for a long time through the prophets. Just trying to show them this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. Given us so many metaphors for Christ, it would take us the rest of the day, just going into the metaphors used for Jesus, that he perfectly, perfectly fulfilled in his life to be struck to be the lamb but also to come in great mercy and peace and bring life and life more abundantly all that was seen by the prophets i'll close with this jesus said many righteous men desired to see what you see he said this in his day but they couldn't see it during jesus time he was saying you guys i don't know that you understand the full ramifications of what's right in front of you here I'm the fulfillment of everything. All the way back to the garden. They've been all talking about me. Moses talking about me. Abraham saw my day. They all looking at me. And here we are. And I know it probably seems kind of like an inauspicious start. In Nazareth, you know, doing some things. But we were right there in Nazareth. And what did he do? He stood up in the temple and he said, he, he, he quoted Isaiah 61. He says, I've come to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. The Spirit of the Lord, it's upon me. And what did they do in Nazareth? They tried to throw him off the cliff. Who is this guy? Isn't this, this Joseph and Mary's son? The guy's out doing woodwork in the back and he's claiming to be, who's he claiming to be? And they tried to throw him right off the precipice there. So he made his way, just exactly according to the prophets, some 25 miles, began the walk towards Galilee. And what had Isaiah seen? There's going to be light coming out of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the Galilee of the Gentiles, and a great light will be seen. And there he began his ministry. So this is exciting because it's real, you know? If you're just here and you just, you've never really thought about the, the reality that Jesus was actually this figure, that it was a fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy and that he was actually raised, and because he's raised, you can be raised. If you've never really had that down in your soul, can I just tell you, keep coming back. We have an atmosphere here that will help you understand that these things are true. These things are true. You can walk the land. You can see we have an historical faith. These things are true. To the letter, down to the very crossing of a T or the dotting of an I, everything's going to be fulfilled. That gets me fired up. That allows me to go 70 and a 40 to be able to get here in time, to be able to tell you these great things. Do not tell anybody that I told you that I did that. We're going to close with a, we're getting near, uh, the time when the world celebrates the birth of Jesus, okay? And uh, some of you have heard this song before, O Holy Night. I think that's one we have, if I'm not mistaken. O Holy Night, would you like to to sing that together and then I'll come back and close us in prayer. Let's do that.